thanks for coming. And I'll uh, quickly describe a little bit about the, the genesis of this exhibi exhibition, and then we can talk about uh, what's in this room and, and uh, what never made it in a little bit. Um, so this is a, a joint exhibition um, between the Library Company of Philadelphia and Laurel Hill Cemetery, uh, Laurel Hill, obviously being far from the center of the city by design, and so not a, a convenient place to hold a, an exhibition, or at least not as convenient as the library company. But more than convenience was involved in having this here. Uh, the connection between these two institutions is John J. Smith, the guy you see here on the wall, whose story we'll get into a little bit more in a minute. Um, but he was both the librarian of the library company and the leading founder of Laurel Hill Cemetery in 1836. So for a long time, many of the relevant historical materials on Laurel Hill have been split between business records at the cemetery and um, other kinds of records, particularly good uh, visual records and kind of memoir and personal records that are kept here at the library company. Um, I won't give you a, a long story uh, about the, the background of this show, but to suffice it to say, it, it comes out of uh, work I did uh, initially for the Historic American Building Survey back in the mid-90s, uh, and then uh, out of a, a dissertation that grew partly out of that earlier work for HABS um, in the last 10 years. Uh, the story of the rural cemetery movement hangs over most of this exhibition, and we won't go into it in great detail, but the thing you need to know is that Laurel Hill is Philadelphia's contribution to this thing called the Rural Cemetery Movement, and that it's the second well-known rural cemetery in the United States. Um, that story is often told as Laurel Hill uh, emulating um, the first rural cemetery in the United States, namely Mount Auburn uh, in Cambridge and Watertown, Massachusetts. And um, I want to talk a little bit as we go along about why that um, story of, of emulation does and doesn't really hold up. Um, one of the things that became clear in doing this research is that the Philadelphia counterpart to Mount Auburn is uh, a story as much about uh, real estate and the urban grid as it is about the picturesque, which is usually the framework under which uh, rural cemeteries are, are interpreted. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself, so let's talk a little bit about the background for the story of real estate, the grid, and Philadelphia uh, burial geography in the early 19th century. Um, this map here, uh, which dates from 1832, was really um, a, a convenient way of trying to lay out uh, how burial worked in, um, in the city of Philadelphia in the early 19th century. Those of you who are familiar with New England and the Northeast in general uh, are probably used to seeing graveyards more concentrated along a, a town green or a common, a central place near a meeting house or a church. Uh, in Philadelphia, um, burial grounds are spread out throughout the 18th century. They really are, are pretty widely distributed throughout the growing fabric of the city. As many of you know, Philadelphia was founded in 1682 and grew not quite as William Penn had intended between these two rivers, the Delaware and the Schuylkill. It grew primarily in a kind of crescent shape. Uh, along the Delaware River and got uh, denser and denser because shipping was good on this side. So what you see here in these blue dots are little graveyards that start uh, springing up around the city really from day one, um, most of them associated with churches. So most of these blue dots are churchyards. Um, the, the big exception are the dots that show up on the four squares of Philadelphia, originally just known uh, by their cardinal uh, coordinates, so northeast, southeast, um, this is Southeast Square right here, now Washington Square, 
which was a, um, used as an institution uh, called the Potter's Field throughout the 18th century. The Potter's Field being the place that uh, so-called strangers, uh, criminals, and paupers would be, would be dumped, essentially, if they could not uh, afford burial in a churchyard. So this is a kind of place for, for um, in many cases, social outcasts or people at the fringe of, of established Philadelphia society, either because they lack the financial resources to be buried in a churchyard or uh, because they've committed some act that's deemed socially unacceptable. Uh, so this, uh, the Potter's Field is also an interesting place historically because it's uh, one of the main kind of centers of public life for Philadelphia's African-American community in the 18th century. It's a place uh, not just for burial, uh, but for, holding of, uh, for the holding of parades and, and kind of public celebrations. Uh, so this, in addition to being kind of um, a marginal white burial space, is actually very central uh, African-American um, public space. And that, that story uh, kind of hovers in the background for most of the 18th century. Uh, the, several big things happen at the end of the century to make the potter's field um, no longer serviceable as a burial place. Uh, one of them is the revolution, during which an enormous number of English soldiers, uh, and American too, but especially English soldiers, die of disease and are buried in mass graves, really trenches that are dug in, in Washington Square. Um, that happens again in 1793 when Philadelphia goes through a, a notorious yellow fever epidemic. So by 1794, 1795, the potter's field is chock full with bodies. It's really kind of, um, it's bodies stacked upon each other. Almost all of the graves are unmarked. And it's understood to be a place that is, is both unsanitary and, and overcrowded. Uh, memories of yellow fever are quite recent. There is a fear that um, decaying organic matter may have something to do with the disease. People don't yet know uh, that yellow fever is spread by uh, mosquitoes. Uh, and so there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of public health concerns that surround the potter's field. So starting in the mid-1790s, the potter's field is shut down in Washington Square, and gradually it makes its way further out, first to kind of 9th and Lombard, uh, down here, then gradually by 1830s, the, uh, the early 1830s when this map was made, out to here in a little kind of village satellite of, of Philadelphia called the Vineyard or Francisville. This is uh, the Potter's Field in 1830. And then finally out um, outside Philadelphia County where, um, in fact, the, the modern equivalent of the Potter's Field still exists. Uh, so the, the story on, one, on one hand of Philadelphia burial in the early 19th century is a story of moving the kind of pauper dead further and further out of the city. Um, and that's, that's an important story because the rural cemetery movement, of which Laurel Hill is a part, really kind of inverts that pattern and says, rather than moving the poor to the edge of the city, suddenly the, the, the further suburbs of the city are going to be a place where the middle and upper classes are going to want to be buried. Um, but keep in mind, then, that prior to 1830, burial on the fringe of town is associated primarily with poverty and low social status. So there's a really important flip that happens starting in the mid-1830s. Um, the uh, kind of visual models for, for that uh, flip are these two cemeteries that we're looking at here on the wall. Uh, Mount Auburn, which we've mentioned, founded uh, outside Boston in 1831 and a, um, originally a kind of joint venture between the Massachusetts Horticultural Society and people wanting to build a rural cemetery, in other words an institution with a naturalistic design built uh, on woodsy grounds um, several miles from the city and partly modeled on um, a Parisian example, a Père Lachaise Cemetery uh, opened in 1804 on the grounds of a former estate 
and Paris's solution to some of the problems we've just been talking about. Uh, crowding of urban burial grounds, um, a sense that they are associated with disease. Mind you that in Paris, those problems are much, much worse. That Parisian burial grounds before 1804 have been literally bursting at the seams uh, in, in creating some very grisly scenes, which I won't describe for you in, in great detail. But uh, Père Lachaise is really the Parisian answer to uh, overcrowding of burial. Uh, and again, offers a, a, a kind of new thing, which is that in 1804, Parisians can bury themselves in lots that are not affiliated with any church, uh, that hold out at least the temporary promise of private property. Père Lachaise uh, offers you private lots uh, for burial, but not in permanent um, ownership conditions. You essentially rent your lot for, for 99 years, uh, according to uh, the European system. Uh, Mount Auburn does something different. It actually says you can own uh, a, a lot in this cemetery in perpetuity. You see them laid out here along these serpentine roads uh, as little independent family lots. And that idea of the family lot as a piece of private property that a family can own in perpetuity is maybe um, the, the, single most the single most important institutional underpinning of the rural cemetery movement. Um, again, much of the writing on the Royal Cemetery Movement focuses on the evolution of the picturesque landscape, moving from 18th century English gardens to Père Lachaise, which is in some ways an interpretation of that for burial purposes, and finally to Mount Auburn. There is an important landscape design story here, um, but undergirding that story is the framework of private property, which Mount Auburn offers um, on, on this sort of large uh, picturesque scale. Um, in the mid-1830s, Philadelphians are um, aware very much of the Mount Auburn example, and they're excited by it, as are uh, people in almost every uh, major American city and even large towns. Uh, Mount Auburn, by the mid-1830s, has become a popular tourist attraction. Uh, its uh, picturesque scenery is, is, is uh, a real lure for people coming out on uh, a steamboat and horse car lines, and, and Mount Auburn becomes a kind of tourist mecca um, and it was also heavily covered in the local press um, and even the national press by the mid-1830s. Uh, so progressive city leaders across the country uh, begin thinking, could our city support something similar? And in Philadelphia, John J. Smith, the librarian at the library company uh, of Philadelphia, begins talking to a man named Benjamin Richards, the former mayor of Philadelphia, who has himself been to Paris and investigated Père Lachaise and very much admires it as a model and hopes to do something similar. So with Père Lachaise and Mount Auburn on their minds, John J. Smith, begin, John J. Smith and, and uh, Benjamin Richards begin talking to other people who seem likely to be able to help them out with this scheme. Um, other uh, kind of public-spirited citizens with uh, either uh, the money or the vision to realize this plan, they contact uh, two other people, Frederick Brown, a leading uh, Philadelphia druggist, and a guy named Nathan Dunn, who is a uh, Philadelphia uh, China merchant with a, uh, a kind of um, dramatic and, and checkered past. Uh, Nathan Dunn in the 18-teens had been an important importer of China into Philadelphia uh, and, and a very wealthy merchant, um, but he, uh, in the course of uh, financial problems that are national at that time, uh, becomes, as they say at the time, embarrassed. He can't pay off his creditors, uh, and he ends up um, essentially defaulting on loans, goes back to China, uh, and in the 1820s rebuilds his fortune. Uh, returning to Philadelphia in the late 1820s, he becomes someone intent on redeeming his reputation, partly through the money he's accumulated, 
through the China trade, and he becomes the kind of patron saint of various institutions. He lends Laurel Hill all of its startup capital. He also lends Haverford, or gives Haverford College a huge amount of money early on. Uh, he's particularly connected to uh, kind of um, conservative Quaker institutions around Philadelphia, um, institutions which have some affiliation with Orthodox Quakers. Um, as some of you may know, in, in 1827, uh, there is a major schism in, in uh, Quakerdom, and Quakers split into Orthodox and Hicksite sides. Uh, the Orthodox tend to be more urban, uh, more mercantile, and more uh, conservative in many respects. Uh, Orthodox Quakerism hovers in the background of Laurel Hill Cemetery. Laurel Hill, like Mount Auburn, is uh, officially non-sectarian, so it has no official religious affiliation. But the uh, sort of de facto uh, religious affiliation of many of its founders is, is important, uh, as much culturally as religiously. I think the kind of culture of Philadelphia Quakerdom hovers over Laurel Hill at, at various points, and we can talk about that a bit. Um, so in, in this case, we're looking at um, some of the institutions that provide uh, either models or counter models for Laurel Hill when it gets started. Um, right here, we're looking at a picture of Old Swede's church, uh, which I kind of offered as an example of a, of a churchyard heavily built up by the early 19th century. Uh, this was one, in fact, where uh, if not the very poor, at least the struggling might have a chance of being buried. The, uh, uh, the, the minister here, a man named Nicholas Collin, is, is, is sort of famously permissive uh, when it comes to um, uh, the, the families of, of, of people who have died and are in, in, in modest means. Uh, but in many cases, in order to be buried in a churchyard, your family has to not only be um, prepared to pay the immediate fees of burial, but also to have been in good standing and paying church dues for, for, um, for years beforehand. So it is often hard to be buried in a churchyard. Um, the alternative up until the 1820s is the potter's field. We talked about Washington Square as a potter's field, and in fact it was the official potter's field. Um, there were also unofficial potter's fields, places where poor people were simply buried without official sanction of any sort. One of them was on the site of 30th Street Station. Um, and uh, that, that story isn't as clear. We don't know as much about it. It's a kind of peripheral location that seems to have belonged to the Quakers up until the early 19th century. Um, and uh, they seem to have kind of left the gate open and people were buried there uh, really from the, the, the 